listen, I've got a little show and tell moment here for you today. I brought one of my most prized possessions to show you today. This is, well, first, a little bit about my history. So I grew up in a Christian home. Um, I'm grateful for it. I grew up in a, in a home that, that valued the Bible. I'm grateful for that. Um, we, last week, we just said that at the beginning of each year, our church, what we do is we spend a couple weeks just looking, not just what's in the Bible, but looking sort of at the Bible itself. How, what is this thing? Can we trust it? How do we engage in it? We're, you know, we, we just want to sort of put our chips back on the table in a new year and be inspired to, to dive back into the scriptures. Because we're going to be spending, every Sunday we open up the scriptures and t- talk about things in it. So let's talk about it. And so that's what we started last week. And this is just the culmination of that, just two weeks. And um, I grew up in a home that, was, that appreciated the Bible. I'm grateful for it. I, uh, but every kid like me, and you know, maybe you're like me, if you grew up sort of in, in a Christian home, there's a thing that has to happen because see, when I grew up when I was little, my, my parents' faith was my faith, essentially. You know, I went to church, why? Because my family goes to church. I read the Bible, why? Because we're Christians, we're supposed to. You know, I kind of just, I do it because it's what our family does. But everybody grows up in that environment, whether it's in middle school or high school or college, has to sort of graduate from their faith being their parents' faith for their faith being their own faith. And for, that's an important graduation. And for me, that happened my sophomore year of high school. So I had some friends who just really got transformed in a really profound way. And it transformed my life. And I went to this conference down in Los Angeles, the Sports Square Conference, and everybody that signed up for the conference got the Grow For It Bible, all right? This, is, this was the Bible. See, this was the first Bible that I read, not because I was supposed to, but because I wanted to. And there was, I was up late at night for, the, you know, those, initially my sophomore, junior year, just reading. In fact, you know, I, I opened this up and it just makes me laugh because I've got just all these like crazy little notes that I scribbled in here all over the place. And then there's some hilarious parts that when I, when I flip to them, I'm like, oh my gosh. Um, there's uh, some of the Paul's letters in the New Testament. It starts with like a, a greeting, like I'm... Like, I'm, I thank God every time I think of you. And uh, what I would do is I would underline things like that. And then I would like write a girl's name next to it, you know? Like, I've even got a picture. I took a picture of it just the other day. This is literally in this Bible right here. I thank my God every time I remember you, Susie. You know, like, I don't, I don't even remember the name. But I just, like, wrote the girl's name. And, uh, and then, you know, like, later on I came across it. And I was like, oh, cross it. It was probably when I got married. Uh, <laughs> like, cross that out. Uh, so embarrassing. And then this, this Bible has tons of memories in it. One other memory that's hilarious is, is when um, I was in college, I went on this missions trip to South Africa with a group of people. And there was this girl on the trip that I, that I really liked. And we were on this missions trip and, you know, we're like getting to know each other better. And this, you know, the romantical sparks were being kindled. And, and uh, she, um, we were, we, she bought some perfume in South Africa and she couldn't fit it in her, in her bag. And so she asked if she could put it in my bag. And in the process of us flying home, it, the, the perfume got broken in my bag and it went all over my stuff. And it just like got all over my Bible. But the funny thing is, is it like it soaked this little part. I got this picture. This is literally my Bible. You can see where that perfume just sort of like soaked into the Bible. And I'm not joking you. I'm not joking you. This was 20 years ago. I'm literally still smell her perfume on this Bible. <sighs> Where's my wife? She's not in here, is she? Okay, I'm just kidding. It's weird. It's like I can still smell it. It's just it's a it's a it's a special Bible for me. I you know I, I I this usually stays on the shelf. I've got some other Bibles that I sort of read on a regular basis, but this one sort of stays on the shelf because it's a little sacred, and um, I'm glad that I grew up in that environment. Now I recognize that a lot of you didn't grow up in an environment like that. Maybe maybe you had a Bible at a young age. Maybe you valued it at a young age. For some of us, we, we've learned to we've learned to value it. For, for some of us, perhaps, you're here and you're, you're a skeptic. You're very skeptical about this. In fact, our, our, our culture as a whole is very skeptical about this. And we realize that that's not lost on us. Um, there are some difficult things in here. So last week, you know, if you missed last week, we kind of took a big picture of what's actually in here. We looked at a big list of books of the Bible and what's the Old Testament? What's the New Testament? And how do they fit together? And, So we did all that last week. This week, I want to take a different approach. It's going to be a slightly bit more nerdy message than last week. Okay, I hope you're okay with that. Last week was pretty nerdy, but this week's going to get a little more nerdy, all right? Because here's my conviction, okay? Here's my conviction is that if if we truly understood, if we truly understood not not just the stories in the Bible, or not just even the story of the Bible, because how many of us know you can know the stories of the Bible, but still miss the story of the Bible, 
Um, and a lot of people don't, because they don't know the story of the Bible, they sort of, it's easy to get really critical about the stories in the Bible. You can know the, the, the stories, but kind of miss the story. One of the other things, though, that we miss that I want to talk about today is we kind of assume that the Bible, that this form, you know, some of you have a physical Bible um, around, um, that everybody has kind of always just sort of had a Bible. The idea sometimes that we get, and last week we sort of debunked some stuff. Remember, Jesus didn't write the Bible. We talked about that last week. Um, but sometimes people think that, the, you know, how we got this was that God just sort of overnighted it to us on golden tablets, you know, it just like fell from the sky. Oh, Bible. And then, oh, no, this is how we're supposed to live. That's not how, that's not how it happened. It didn't come to us in this packaged form. It didn't come with us with maps in the back, you know, like yours has. It didn't come with a table of contents, you know, or a thesaurus thing. You know, it didn't have any of that sort of stuff. The Bible came to us in such a more, such a, such a much more dynamic way, in a much more beautiful way. And I just have the conviction that if we were to, to um, if we were to really see and get a glimpse of how the Bible came to us, how much, how much blood had to be shed for us to be able to be holding this in our hands right now, I think we would just, we would just have such a deeper appreciation for the scriptures. I think we would. Now here's what's true, is in this day and age, more than any other time, this is absolutely true, is we have an overwhelming supply of Bibles, don't we? We have an overwhelming supply of Bibles. There is all kind of Bibles. You can go anywhere. Amazon can get it to you here in two days. Um, it's super cheap, right? You can get a, a full Bible for just a few dollars. Um, you can go to a bunch of bookstores, and there's tons. I mean, you're just, you'll just be overwhelmed. I remember when my friend Caitlin, when she didn't have a Bible, and she was, like, standing in front of the bookshelf of Bibles at Barnes & Noble, and she literally, like, texts me, and she's like, which one do I get? I thought there was one Bible. I'm very confused that there's 80 Bibles on the shelf here. I mean, there's so many. There's the chicken soup for the soul Bible. There's a, you know, like the hundred minute Bible. There's the skaters Bible. There's the, you know, there's, there's the single mom's Bible. There's the single dad's Bible. There's just every single sort of type of Bible out there. And also here's the other reality about our, about our, uh, the access to the Bible that we have right now is not only is it cheap, but it's never been as accessible as it has ever has before. Because guess what most of us can do if you want the Bible? Watch this. It's really difficult. I'll, I'll demonstrate. <laughs> and then it's right there. There's an app. You have every single translation you ever want all right in your fingertips. Here's what you got to know. I mean, we're, we're so great. I hope we're grateful for that. But sometimes we forget that we should be grateful for that because here's the truth is that it, it hasn't always been this way. In fact, for most human beings who have tried to follow Jesus in their life have not had even near to the access of the scriptures that we enjoy. So my, my hope today, my, my whole purpose today my goal in getting a little bit nerdy with you today is, is I hope that if, if you and I would just get a, a glimpse of just how, how, how unique it is that we have these Bibles in our hands, how, what, how incredible that we have so many at our fingertips, that if we could just get a little glimpse of that, then it would, it would grow our appreciation for the scriptures. And I, just, and I hope your appreciation for the scriptures grows. If you're kind of new to this whole thing and you're starting at like, you know, you're not even at zero, you're like negative two, you know, um, then I hope you can just take a step in just tr maybe even just trusting its validity just a little bit more this morning. Maybe you're a veteran. I mean, you've been, you've been in your Bible for decades and decades. Uh, well, I hope this morning you learned something new. But here's what, ha what we all know what happens when you've been doing something for a long time. You start to go through the motions. You, it starts to get just, just, it starts to kind of, kind of get mundane. One of the things that I hear about most when it comes to the Bible is that, you know, it's just it's kind of getting dry. I hope this can re-spark some things. Now, um, there, was, there is a moment in the Old Testament that's, uh, that's really cool to mention right here because there's a moment when literally uh, the, the, old, the people who had the Old Testament scriptures, remember we talked last week, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these are the first books of, of the, the Old Testament, um, of the law and the prophets, and it's the beginnings of our story, and God's raising up this people. And, and God um, is directing and leading this group of people to be this special group of people on the planet where if they would just let God be king and rule, 
like he created us to be, that it would be a blessing to all the other nations, that through this nation, all the nations would be able to see God through the Israelites. And so God is working with them, and there's these prophets, and and they write things down, and this is where this Old Testament scripture comes from. Um, And uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, the, the Israelite people are returning to the scriptures all the time, but there's this moment in the Old Testament, it comes from the book of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. I'll put this list of, of Bible or of books up here. Remember, this is New Testament, Old Testament, Jesus comes right in the middle, and 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles are where you can get this story. There's this young king named Josiah, King Josiah. He becomes king of the nation at the age of eight. Now, I have a nine-year-old, okay? So when I think about Josiah leading, being king of the nation at eight, it just makes me giggle a little bit because this would be an amazing country to live in for about a week. <laughs> and then it would start to crumble, you know? But here's this young king, and what's been passed before him is generations and generations of kings who have neglected God's word. They've neglected, you know, the, the ancient, the, 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 the scriptures, and it's become lost to them. Literally, they've lost the scriptures. They haven't seen them in a long time, and they're just worshiping other gods. They're doing all this other stuff, and things are not going well for the Israelites. And then here's Josiah, and there's something about his heart that's different. And Josiah says, I'm, I, wanna, I want my heart to return to the true God, to the true king, and something happens where he decides, I, I'm gonna, we're going to clean this place up. Let's get into this old dilapidated temple that nobody's gone to in a long time. Let's clean it out. Let's tidy it up. Tidy it up. And so he and a group of people go in. And I wish I could have been, you know, this is one of those parts of the Bible where I wish, you could have, wish I could have been there. Because they're literally in the temple, this place where people haven't gone in a long time. And they're dusting some stuff off and kicking over some things. And, uh, and then they open up and there's these scrolls, these ancient scrolls. What, what is this? pull it out and it's and it's the old testament it's it's the it's genesis exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy it's god's god's laws that, that they haven't laid eyes on that josiah has never laid eyes on that perhaps the priest the high priest perhaps has never laid eyes on and it's new to them again and they start to read it and the scripture says they start to cry because they're, they're, they're crying for joy, but they're also crying because their hearts are sort of broken because look how far we've drifted. Look where we are now. And Josiah makes a courageous, bold move. Jo- Josiah says, we're gonna, we're gonna bring our nation back to the scriptures. And so he calls the nation and everyone gathers and they read the scriptures from morning till night. And then, and then they put together this huge Passover celebration, the largest that they've had, that they've had in forever. And what happens next in that old part of the Old Testament is nothing less than an Old Testament revival that takes place. Why? Because they were reintroduced to the scriptures. I hope that that happens for us this morning for a little bit. So I want to get into some Bible history. I said last week, remember, um, some people spend like eight grand and 15 weeks of their life to take a course on this. So I'm going to teach you all that same stuff in the next 20 minutes. It's a great deal, all right? So, um, hey, two things about the Bible. Um, well, just uh, actually just one thing about the Bible that I want you to understand. What I want you to understand when we approach this thing, and I find this really helpful, you know, we just got through Christmas. We love Christmas. One of the things we talk about at Christmas time is we talk about this mystery about how God is divine and human in the person of Jesus. It's, it's, it's incredible that he would be all God and all man. How do those two things come together? We've, we're still trying to, trying to figure out just how that works together, but as you can't figure it out because it, really you're confronted with this tension. It's, it's a mystery. His divinity doesn't diminish his humanity and his humanity doesn't diminish his divinity and both of them are essential and important in the person of Jesus. It's incredible. And what's cool is that when we approach the Bible, it's a little bit of the same sort of attention that we find ourselves in. That what we know about the scriptures is that human beings penned these down. They wrote these stories. They were, you know, some are prophetic, some are eyewitness, some are po- poetry. Um, and so they come to us and it, it comes to us in different genres. It comes to us um, from different people in different circumstances. And they're writing the scriptures, not like in a trance. So it's not like they were like, you know, um, and, you know, God takes them over their body and um, writing. And so they were just like writing the scriptures. That's not how it happened. They were, cogn- they were cognizant. They were there. They were lucid. They were, you know, they were writing their own. But yet through that humanness, through our humanity, God 
inspires them. And through what they write in the scriptures and what's given to us is what he wants to tell us. It's his, well, one of the things we, church language that we like to use sometimes is we say that it's God's word. It's his word. That's amazing. It's a, it's a little bit of a tension. It's a mystery that it's divine and human together, but it's everything that we need for us to be able to know who Jesus is um, and what he's done. Um, by the way, I'm just remembering that I had a college roommate named Stephen, and he did this really tricky thing. He named his bed the Word. He really named his bed the Word. So he would come down at breakfast and be like, hey, Stephen, where have you been all morning? He's like, oh, I've been in the Word, man. I've just been deep in the Word. And see, we thought we were, he was super spiritual for a long time. And then we figured it out. Liar. Okay, let's get nerdy. You guys ready? So cool. So fascinating. Um, here's where we begin, all right? Here's sort of like a little timeline of how we got the Bible, how we got the scriptures. It didn't just plop down on the ground. It came to us in a different way. So we're going to start really far back, all right? B.C., 1500 B.C. Around 1500 B.C. Um, is where we get the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. Right around there, just super far back. But that's sort of like the first sort of like written thing that God says, hey, here's, here's how I want you to live. Here's how I want you to be in this world that I've created. Around 1500. And then it wasn't until the year about 443 when, um, you know, all these stories from the Old Testament and these prophets and these, these uh, the po poetry writing, all this stuff sort of gets put together and it's compiled in sort of one place into the, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. So there's a long period of time where these are just documents that are kind of going around, but they get compiled around the year 443. Um, now, these are very rare documents, right? Because the printing press hasn't been developed yet. This is just copying and writing. And there's a lot of copies. And what we know about how they copied things back then, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second, was that they were meticulous. They took such great care. But there weren't that many of these, of these Old Testament you know, scrolls. I mean, they were around, but people didn't walk around with one, you know. I mean, it was way too precious for that. So, you know, each temple and, you know, each synagogue would have sort of their own copy. In fact, when we, in just a little bit later, when Jesus shows up, we know that Jesus would, would, would come to the temple. And that's where we, you would hear the reading of the Old Testament, of the Word of God, of the law and the prophets. That's where you'd have to go. You didn't have your own copy. You went to some place where it was read to you. And then we get to the first century, and this is when Jesus showed up, all right? Now, um, I tried to find the most, you know, like, um, you know, I don't know, kick butt sort of uh, action figure that I could, all right, for Jesus. Um, but uh, here comes Jesus, and what we know about Jesus is that right around the year 33 AD, between 30 and 33 AD, something happens. Remember, Jesus comes and he makes this incredible claim. I mean, it's this claim that someone's... So, and this is why so many people just didn't believe him because Jesus showed up and said, hey, remember all this? Hey, you guys know all this stuff that you study so meticulously? All this is pointing to me. It's pointing to me. Here I am. It's all pointing to me. And for some people that was, they said the Messiah has come. The long awaited king has come. But others, a lot of other Jewish people just could not and would not believe it. And Jesus went around teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God and healing and saying, I'm God in the flesh, which is, you know, it's an incredible claim to make. And the disciples are all on board, and then, and then tragedy strikes. Jesus is hoisted up onto a Roman cross. And for all intents and purposes, those disciples are broken men and women. I mean, they're done. I mean, they're just disillusioned. I mean, I thought this was the king, and now he's dead? And so they... They go back to their, you know, to their fishing. They go and hide in the upper room. And if that was the end of the story, then we would not have this. Because there, there'd be no story. I mean, they, if, if, if that was the end of the story, if Jesus crucified, then, you know, they would have gone back to their thing. And maybe some of Jesus' teachings would have been handed to us eventually. We would have had this Old Testament scripture where we're, you know, still looking forward to a Messiah. But something happened. A few days later, the world got turned upside down. Jesus is alive. They see him alive. Jerusalem is turned upside down. And the church, the church of Jesus, 
It starts to grow and expand. Not because somebody had some good teaching. It's because they saw Jesus alive. The resurrection is so huge and key. And what you got to realize is that they were walking around now for the, for the next hundred years. The church is growing. But guess what? They don't have this. They don't have a Bible. They have some Old Testament. But the conversation in that first few hundred years, it wasn't about a book. It was about news. It was about news. They had the best news that Jesus has conquered sin and death. He's included us in his story. He has come. He's rescued us. We get to be new humans. We get to be a new family, a new community. That was the news. And the news spread and grew. And out of that, churches got it planted. And out of that, they started, um, they started uh, remembering all the things that happened. One of the, one of the uh, here's, I guess, another date you need to know. 45 through 90. This is right around where the, the documents, the, the New Testament that we have, that's when those were, were written. Between 45 and 90 A.D. Remember, Jesus dies in 33 so between 45 and 90, the Gospels, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then all these letters, all these letters to these churches that Paul is writing and Peter and others um, are being circulated all throughout, all throughout the known Roman world. But it doesn't in the form of a book. It's in the form, it's in the form of just letters. I mean, it's just going out. It's going everywhere. And some people have a piece of this and some people have a piece of that. It's being copied and it's being copied and... And uh, it's, being, it's, it's just getting pushed out there to the fringe. You might be asking yourself, why weren't they writing it when Jesus, why weren't they like taking notes and writing it right when Jesus was with them? Well, it's because they didn't know they should have been writing it down at the time. And then when Jesus left, you know what he said? He said, hey, I'm going, but I'm coming back. And so they're like, sweet, he's coming back next week. So they just go out there with their news and they're not writing anything down. And so 10 years go by. 20 years go by, suddenly they're like, oh, I think we should write this down. Because he's not back yet. So that's when they send out eyewitnesses. Now remember, all the eyewitnesses are still alive while these are being written. Here's one of the greatest proofs that we know that this wasn't legend. You know, one of the stories that we hear sometimes about the Bible is that, it ha you know, Jesus was a great guy. He maybe did some cool stuff. But then, it, you know, legend became myth and myth became you know and it just kind of grew and then all of a sudden later on there's all these crazy stories of Jesus doing miracles but re but these are being written when the eyewitnesses are there they're alive in fact when you read the new testament you'll see all sorts of people's names like hey um and Rufus did this hey go talk to Rufus he'll tell you and if you're trying to make stuff up you don't write it in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses you just don't. You wait until everybody's gone and then you kind of, you can create your own story later on. But that's not what happened in the writing of the New Testament. But right now it's not together. It's all just kind of like spread out, kind of in, going to all sorts of places all throughout the known world. And then we get, we get to the year 15 AD. Now what, I'm sorry, 1500 AD. In the year 1500 AD, there is this guy named Marcion. All right, here's Marcion. And Marcion shows up, remember a year of, uh, of 150 AD, he is not an eyewitness, right? He is long removed from being an eyewitness of, but he decides that he wants to write his own version of the New Testament. He's like, you know what? I don't kind of like how those guys wrote theirs. I'm going to write my own version of how things went down. And so Mar Marcion, he starts to write his own, uh, you know, account of the life of Jesus. Now, obviously, he's, he's like super off on a lot of different things. And other people, not just Marcion, but other people start doing this too. In fact, now there's some things being spread around. Marcion's got his gospel and there's this other, you know, other stuff. And some of it are saying some really strange things. And then there's other people who are like, you know, I don't think anybody's going to read my gospel because nobody's going to read the gospel of Frank. Right? Like, okay, so I'll just put, I'll just cross out my name and I'll put Peter at the top or I'll put Paul at the top. Then people will read it if I put somebody else's name. So do you see what's happening? Now there's the eyewitness accounts, but now there's all this other stuff that's out there too. And so they decide, hey, we got to get a handle on this. We got to figure out what is actually eyewitness accounts, what's scripture, what belongs in there and what doesn't. And so that's when the church, church leaders would get together. This is the beginning of a lot of different years of them having all these sort of councils and meetings where they determine this is what books of the Bible should be in it and which ones shouldn't be in it. Now, think about it. Think about it. The story that we get sometimes, especially if you watch The Da Vinci Code and you were like, I knew it. They've got all these other gospels and the man's trying to keep us away from the truth. You know, I don't know. We as Americans kind of get into some of that stuff sometimes, you know, like... 
Um, but, but that wasn't the story at all. Really, it's, hey, there's all this kind of crazy stuff getting pushed out there. We need it. What's the truth? Well, who are the eyewitnesses? We need to make some lines about what's going to be in the scriptures and accepted as scripture and what's not. So it wasn't malicious. It wasn't some guys in a white beard off in a room all on their own, just sort of writing it up. I mean, these are people who are so committed, so committed to us long ahead in the future so that we could get the eyewitness accounts. Um, and that's what is going on at that point. And then it wasn't until the year 312 when the very first complete Bible was put together with the Old Testament and New Testament books, the year 312. Now, uh, it's not necessarily in this form. It was also sort of like on some scrolls probably. Um, it was, it was uh, not in the form that we have it. It was also copied. So guess how many copies there are of this? Not that many. Nobody's walking around with a Bible at this point. And remember, the church has been flourishing and growing for, three, for about 300 years. And they're not walking around with, you know, with these whole complete Bibles, even still, even still. And then in 400, the year 400, Jerome, he writes a version of the Bible. It's, it's, he, translate it from, from, uh, he translates it from Hebrew and Greek, and he translates it into Latin. Latin. Latin was the sort of academic language of the day. He translates it in Latin, and that wasn't a bad thing, but it turned into a difficult thing for the church because by the year 600, around 600, it was only Latin Bibles only. It was illegal to have a copy or, or translate the, anything from the Bible into any other language besides Latin. Latin was the language. And the church became sort of, sort of married to this Bible, this Latin Bible, for the next thousand years. For the next thousand years. And that brings us to this next um, season of time. Now, this next season of time, historians usually give a name to this time, this time period. It's a very sort of, uh, you know, it's not a very uh, uh, uplifting name. Do you guys know what it is? Dark Ages. The Dark Ages. Exactly. The Dark Ages. They call it the Dark Ages for a lot of different reasons. Um, but what's interesting about this time period is, is really interesting. There's a lack of art being produced. There's a lack of music being produced. There's just a lack in general of just creativity and human flourishing. And what's happened during this time is suddenly the power in the church of Jesus has become consolidated. Now the Pope has been elevated to a place of power. Now think about this. Think about this. It's easy for us to get really down on the Catholic church and picture them as being these like, you know, really... I don't know, nefarious sort of characters. But, um, you know, think about it. On one hand, you've got these people who are committed to the scriptures and they're thinking, you know what, if people have access to the Bible in their own language, if they can read it for themselves, then who knows what kind of weird things they're going to come up with? Who knows what sort of weird like, ideas they're going to come up with? Pretty soon we got all these people teaching all this stuff that isn't in the Bible. We need to kind of keep control over this. So on one hand, you you know, it's out of this heart to want to just make sure that there's not this, you know, crazy destructive heresy that's going on. And there was a lot of good things that happened during the season two in the church. So many great reforms and care being extended to, uh, to the known world. A lot of things happened. You know, the gladiatorial games got, got, um, got pushed away because the Christians rose up and said, no, we're not going to throw people into the arena anymore. There's all sorts of things that happened, but there was also a lot of negative things that happened too because with the consolidation of power and because the people didn't have access to the scriptures themselves, now suddenly you've got this perfect system where it can be abused, where power can get abused, where the scripture can get taught, or where the scripture can get taught in ways that, that aren't true to what the scripture actually teaches. So this is the season where you have the crusades where people are saying, hey, if you go and destroy the infidels, you will have a spot in heaven. And if somebody were to say, hey, let me find my Bible to make sure that's in there. Guess what? Ah, no Bible. <laughs> you don't got one. And even the, the, the clergymen at this point are, are, many of them are illiterate. In addition to all the, the commoners who are illiterate as well and also don't speak Latin, you just got a system, a system for all sorts of layers of rules and rules and rules and extra things and extra things and extra things. And it was not Good, until something happened. Something happened. In the year 1300, around this time, something, the beginnings of what's called the Reformation started to happen. And the very first character that we see in the Reformation is a guy named John Wycliffe. And John Wycliffe, in the year 1380, he translates the Bible for the very first time into English. It's translated into English for the very, very first time. 
He translates it from the Latin into English. Remember, it's not in a book form yet. It's sort of like in like parchment form. It's not all put quite together. I actually have a picture of, of one of the pages from a Wycliffe Bible. It looks like that. It's written in sort of like Middle English. It was very expensive. It took a long time because it was hand copied. So there's not that many copies of it. But at the very beginning, we have the Bible translated into English and it created a firestorm. An absolute revolution, a firestorm. People loved him and people hated him. And what happened next was incredible. Very, what happens next very quickly in 1415, Jan Hus, he's, a, he's Czech and he's inspired by Wycliffe. So he translates the Bible into Czech. They take Jan Hus and they burn him at the stake and they use John Wycliffe's Bible as kindling for the fire. John Wycliffe is dead at this point, but he died of natural causes. And the Pope is so upset that Wycliffe started this firestorm that they didn't get to kill him themselves. That they didn't get to kill him themselves. That in 1428 they exhume Wycliffe's body. They literally dig up his dead body and burn it to ashes and sprinkle it into the river. Because I'm just so so mad. We're just so mad at him. We're just gonna kill him again. And then. Then what happens in the year 1440 is a game changer, the Gutenberg printing press. Up to this point, everything was hand copied. There was not a lot of copies. And if you had a copy, it means you were rich, powerful, you had to know all the right people. So it was still removed from, 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 from actual people. But then the printing press, press comes onto the scene and it's a game changer. Now you can print a bunch of copies, um, which is really cool. There was uh, the very first book that was ever printed on this planet was a Latin Bible. It was Gutenberg's Bible. There's 180 original copies. Today, 21 of them exist. You can go to Washington, D.C. to the Library of Congress and see one of Gutenberg's, Gutenberg's Bible. A couple years ago, one went up for auction and it sold for a cool $35 million. If anybody's in the market, all right? Just in, in case anybody wants one. Um, so much stuff happened. After that point, um, Martin Luther, I picked a transformer for Martin Luther because he's like, he's pretty awesome. Uh, Martin Luther comes around, translate the Bible into German. That's 1522. And then in 1526, William Tyndale prints the very first Bible in English. Um, the Gutenberg Bible was in Latin, but this Bible, it was a printed Bible finally, the very first printed Bible in English. Wycliffe translated it. Wycliffe was also burned at the stake. Well, he was, he was strangled first and they didn't quite get the job done in the strangling, so then they burned him at the stake. And what we know is that on the stake, he's given his life to try to get the Bible into people's hands and, and being burned at the stake, his last words were, may God open the eyes of the King of England. May God open his eyes so that the Bible can come to everyday people. Um, what's interesting is 1553 is the very first time we get a Bible where there's chapter markings and verses just like our Bibles today. So it wasn't until that time where there were actually chapter divisions and verse and, and, you know, and, and verses in the Bible. It wasn't until then. And then in 1611, after a lot of turmoil, remember during this time, and especially in England, there's one king gets to power and he's like, uh, no Bibles for you. And then another king would come up to power and say, no Bibles for everyone. And then next, you know, that king would get killed. Another king would come up and say, no Bibles for you. So it was just up and down, topsy-turvy. Um, um, Bloody Mary comes in. Remember, you remember Mary because you used to, you know, say her name in the bathroom when you were in middle school. You know, you remember that? Remember those days? Bloody Mary. She was named Bloody Mary because she was one of those leaders that said, no Bibles for you. If you translate the Bible into any, any other unapproved language, then you're dead. And she killed a lot of people. That's how she got her name. But this was the beginning of the Bible being translated and given to us. So finally now with the printing press, finally now after a bunch of time and after, after 1611 where King James says, okay, the Bible is going to get, we're going to have a, a new Bible is going to be able to be accessible to anybody. It wasn't until 1611 basically where now suddenly you've got Bibles that begin to become affordable. that begin to become things that somebody can hold in your hand. That's incredible. And the church has been flourishing. So much, even with the Bible necessarily not in their hands. But here's what's so cool, is the story continues even today. The story continues. Because now we find ourselves in a new amazing season of time where there are still people on this planet who don't have the scriptures in their own language. 
We are still living in a world where this Bible is outlawed in some countries, that you will go to prison if you have one. That's incredible. That, that is still continuing today. And so what's cool about this story is that now we find ourselves a part of this story. We are a part of this story. What happens next? And here's what's cool. Last little nerdy bit, and then I've got a friend to introduce you to. Is Remember the whole copying thing? Isn't it? Have you noticed that there's been lots of copying going on? Like a lot? <laughs> it was like this, and then it was copied to this, and, you know, and then there's... Then it was copied and then, you know, copied different languages. And so you would think that once we get to here, that, man, they've just added all sorts of weird stuff over a bunch of time. You know, it's just been tweaked and morphed and who knows if what we have today. Here's what's so cool is uh, growing up, you know who I wanted to be for a job? When people ask me, like, Brooks, what do you want to be? Here's my answer. Indiana Jones. That's who I wanted to be. I just love the whole archaeology thing. Um, it's, it's, and here's what's been happening from 1700 to today is all sorts of new discoveries. You know that they've gone into, they've gone into uh, um, monasteries and, and places and they've like gone down into the basement and they're like, hey, what's under this thing? And they kick it over and they look. And here's ancient scrolls, older than we have ever had before. We're still making these discoveries. The most famous one happened in the 40s with the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's a, there's a, there's a shepherd boy and he's out tending his flock and he kind of like throws this rock up someplace and he hears like clay shatter. It didn't sound right. He's like, well, there's a clay jar around here. He goes and looks and it turns out his little pebble went into a cave and it broke a glass or I mean a, a clay jar and there are these Dead Sea Scrolls. And here's what you got to know about the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls predated any other sort of original document that we had by about a thousand years. The oldest documents. So here's what's so cool about that. Guess what we're able to do? We're able to look at these documents and then we're able to look all the way down the line and be able to ask the question, is what's in here the same as what's in here? Because if there's all these things added, then there should be all sorts of weird things here that aren't in here. And guess what? You know what they've discovered? It's about a 99.5% accuracy that there's a 0.5% difference. And the 0.5% differences between all those translations are like dropping a the, dropping a little sentence here. Nothing has to do with big pieces of theology. It all has just like little grammatical things. And even if, even uh, the things that they have discovered, when you look at your Bible, there's a little footnote in it and it'll tell you exactly where it is. Nothing's in the dark. There isn't a group of guys with beards in a room making it all up. No, the scripture was given to us not like this, but man, it was given to us just by a church on mission, a church that has a mission in our world and the Bible's come to us through that. It's such an incredible thing. I've got a guest that I wanna introduce you to. I want Ryan to come on up. Ryan's gonna come up and here's what you gotta know about Ryan. Ryan grew up, Ryan grew up in Eugene. We used to, oh here, I'm gonna give you the tall bench. You're the guest. I'll take the, you know, the, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. I think that's a, that's a Bible verse about that. Um, so uh, we, he grew up in Eugene and we were at Eugene Faith Center for, and when I was in college, I was like leading worship there and you were one of the students there. And so I've known Ryan for a while, but I got coffee with Ryan not too long ago and he was telling me about what his plans are in this next journey of his life and oh, just inspired. And I initially thought, I just need to get Ryan here. I want you to meet him. Oh, thank you. You need one of these. Yes, thank you. Um, Ryan, tell us just a little bit about um, how you started um, and what you got, and then tell us a little bit about what you're going to be doing next. So um, I got started at Faith Center, and uh, I remember in middle school, I would pull a Bible out of the bookshelf, not a kid's Bible, but an actual Bible, and I would just read the stories in it and forget everything else going on around me because I had a very one-track mind. And God has really used that, but I'm also very socially awkward at the same time. Um, the the I, I grew up on missionary stories. I remember in third grade, I wrote a short story about a missionary traveling around the world and sharing Jesus with people. And that was just something I always wanted to do. For some reason, that always resonated in my heart. Um, I learned, I started learning Greek when I was in first grade. My dad teaches Greek. He, right now he teaches at New Hope Christian College and he got to be one of my, one of uh, Brooks's uh, teachers. So. Um, that's just, I, I've gone on to learn Spanish and I read Greek and Hebrew for my daily devotions now. I learned some Arabic and Korean. Uh, soon I'm going to be learning Hausa, which is a language spoken in Nigeria. It's one of the trade languages. So I've, 
I've gone on to get my bachelor's in linguistics, my master's in linguistics and exegesis. The point being is, God, I, I've been very excited about doing this for a very long time, and I feel like God has been preparing me, and this is my calling. I, in Nigeria, I get to do uh, linguistics, Bible, and teaching, and that's everything I've ever wanted to do. So I'm just really excited to be going out. Yeah, so remember John Wycliffe, I mentioned, to, I mentioned you earlier, um, and uh, there's a really great organization called Wycliffe Translators, and he's going to be going with Wycliffe to this people group in Nigeria. Tell us a little bit more about what you're going to be doing for them, and how, bi how big is that people group? So there's over 500 languages in Nigeria, and 300 of them don't have even a verse of Scripture. So if you turn to Isaiah 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, you're not going to find that in any of those languages. They don't get access to that. Um, so I'm going to be a linguist translator, and we partner with the people groups themselves to get the Bible translated into their language. Um, so I'm, not, I'm going to be starting out with one group to, uh, that I'm still waiting for my assignment on that, but originally it was going to be the Wachi people group. Um, that project is currently underway now, so hallelujah. Uh, but we'll eventually move to other groups and join them and form teams, and then we'll, uh, I'll be able to visit those groups on a regular basis. As a linguist, I'm going to be analyzing languages we don't know much about, helping make a dictionary, helping make an alphabet. Uh, imagine if English was never written down. <laughs> How easily would we have access to the Bible? It would be very difficult. Um, as a translator, uh, that's where we form a team, and then the Wycliffe staff uh, and the Nigerian people groups, uh, we walk through the process together. Um, then I get to take a side role and become a consultant. Uh, this is at the point where the people group themselves take over the project and they go forward, and we take that support role. Uh, this is where really funny stories come into play. So Wait, hold on, wait, just one oh, second, because I want to be clear, make sure everybody's clear, because you're not just going to go translate the Bible for people. You're going to a place where you have to, there's no, they don't have a written language, so you have to create an alphabet for yes. them and then you have to create a written language for their language. And then you have to teach, and in conjunction with them, you have to teach them to, to be able to read it. And they have to own that process because you can't just walk in and be like, here's your alphabet, you know, like, that doesn't work. And so there has to be this partnership. And then, and then you have to do all that so they can actually sort of have a language they can read. And then you translate the scripture into that language. And here's what's crazy about Ryan is Ryan, he's, you're a young man, how old are you? 29. 29, and he's gonna go and he's gonna be, he's, he's getting ready to go because he's going to spend the next 30 years of his life doing this for this people group because you know why you know why 30 years because that's how long it's going to take it's going to take that long to do everything that we just said that's incredible to me so inspiring and so now you're in that place and now you gotta now you have to like translate what are some of the challenges or unique things involved with just translating the scripture into some into their language for them to be able to comprehend it and understand it so um Okay, just a story to sort of illustrate. Uh, there's a lot of cultural, uh, so not only is the Bible in a different language, it's also in a different culture. Um, one group called the Ziga, they, uh, they didn't, we weren't there with them, so when they tried translating on their own, they thought, okay, this is, we're just assuming our culture from the get-go. So they ended up translating John 3.16 this way. Because God wanted the land so much, he sent his son, so anyone who was deceived by him would not die, but wander as a ghost forever. And that was without, <laughs> that was without the cultural understanding. When we came on, we, we of course cleaned those things up. We try to give them the tools that they need so that that they can do it properly, and we walk with them, we check for yeah. those kinds of mistakes. But uh, when, so, okay, the, the cultural difference as well as language difference can be a huge barrier. Uh, one group in Papua New Guinea, uh, the consultant came and they were translating the story where uh, in the book of Acts, Paul is running away from the ruler of Damascus. So they put him into a basket and then they let him over the side of the wall so he can escape into the night and avoid the guards. Uh, this wasn't in his notes, but the consultant felt the Holy Spirit prompt him, so he asked the indigenous translators, hey, how do you imagine that happened? So the indigenous translators got together, they talked about it, they came back and they said, okay, here's what we think happened. 
They prayed really hard and shrank Paul down to the size of an ant. And then they put him into the basket and then they led him over the side of the wall. Because the word for basket that they had translated with initially was a prototypical hand-sized basket. So they thought, okay, this big guy has to fit into a small basket. And they needed to find a word for a big man-sized basket. And even then, sometimes words don't exist in the language and you have to yeah. find a workaround. Um, so that's just one story that kind of illustrates the challenges between culture and language. Um, was there something else? No, no that was good. Oh, okay. Um, like, uh, tell me, you're doing this and you're given the next couple decades of your life because you, because you think this matters. You believe this matters. What, what makes you so passionate about wanting to do this? I, okay, first off, I love my Bible and I can't imagine people not having access to God's word. Um, there's over 2,100 languages in the world that still don't have any scripture. And uh, since Wycliffe adopted Vision 2025, we want to see a project started in every language by the, that, by the year 2025. Um, as a result, over the past 10 years, we've had over 1,000 translation projects started. And as of October 2017, the number of languages uh, having a project has passed the number of languages needing a project. So this has been because God has blessed us with lots of prayer and partnership and working together and cooperation, and it really is the body of Christ working together in this process. Um, some of just two quick stories to share about the impact of Bible translation. One group, both groups come from Cameroon. One group is called the Yambeta. Everybody say Yambeta. Yambeta. The Yambeta people group they would read the Bible in French, they would pray in French, they would do services in French. Everything was done in French. French is one of the national languages. One day, the pastor was reading to a group of women under a tree. And uh, he was reading for the first time to them in Yambeta. It was from the Gospel of Luke. It was the crucifixion story. And this group of women, they were paying such close attention to every word that he was saying. It was like you could hear a pin drop. When he finished the story, they ran up to him and they said, we have never heard this story before. Where did you get this story? The pastor was really surprised. He pulled out his French Bible. He said, I read this to you every Easter. See, here it is, right here. It's, it's in French. But they insisted. They had, never read the, they had never heard the story before. And this was an evangelized people group. So uh, that's like in our society, imagine if the Bible was only available in Spanish. How many people know some Spanish, by the way? Okay. Now, how many of you really know Spanish? Like, you speak it fluently. <laughs> And you guys would be the only people who understood what the Bible was saying. So that's what it's like for so many people in Nigeria right now. Um, another on, on, on that note, it would be it would be easier it would be easier to just translate the Bible into you have the Bible in French. Teach them how to read French. Even, um, even you, then. you know the Bible's in English. Teach them how to read English. In a, in a way that would be easier. But what you're saying is that when the, when the scripture gets translated in, into people's like heart language, like in their language, that it, 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 it does something that a language that they've learned somewhere else just can't, it can't do. It doesn't reach to the, to the core, to the bottom. That's correct. Yeah. A common demo I like to do, I like to give uh, the same verse in four different languages, one in Spanish, one in Hawaiian pidgin, and another in English to just demonstrate what the effect is. Most people would raise their hand and say, oh, I caught one or two words from the Spanish. And then other people would raise their hand for the Hawaiian pidgin and say, okay, I understood it, but I had to really think about it before I understood it. And then when you read it in English, most of most every hand goes up and say, I completely understood that. I did not have to think twice about what it said. So um, the effect is incredibly important. Um, <clears throat> one other story that uh, shares about the impact of Bible translation comes from the Hadi people group. Everybody say Hadi. Hadi. So the Hadi people group, their, their verbs end with an E, an A, or an U. But for some reason, the Wycliffe translator could only find two forms for the word for love, Devi and Deva. Where was Devu? So he asked the indigenous translators, many of whom were married men or old elders within the village, what does it mean if you Devi your wife? Everybody say Devi. Devi. Oh, that means you loved her once, and now you don't love her anymore. He asked, what does it mean if you deva your wife? Everybody say deva. Deva. 
Uh, that depends on how she behaves, they said. She has to bring you water, cook you a good meal, be faithful to you, treat you well. As long as you do those things, you devour her. Then he asked, well, what about? Devoe. Devoe. <laughs> and they burst out laughing and they said, that's impossible. That means even if she cheats on you or doesn't treat you well or cooks a good meal, you still couldn't help but go on loving her, devouing her. After they quieted down, he thought of John 3.16. How does John 3.16 start out? For God so loved. For God so loved the world. So then he asked, what about God? Could God devoo people? Silence. For three or four whole minutes, they thought about it, and they started to cry. And they said, that would mean that God loved us no matter what we did. Even though we've sinned so much against him, he could not help but go on loving us, devooing us. And that went into their translation of John 3.16. So that's, that's what really, you know, that's the effect that the Bible has in your heart language. And when we partner with the people groups, it not only changes their lives, it empowers them as well. Uh, Joe Aputa from Papua New Guinea, he was a high school dropout because his family could not afford to send him to school. And so he was very, like, sad and could not, he, he felt worthless to a degree. His best friend came and said that they, they're the village was doing a Bible translation project and he could come join and he thought, can I really? Like, I'm, I'm not sure what I could do, but he came and they gave him a computer and taught him how to use it. And now he is the one teaching other people how to use the computer. And he's not only that, but he got to join the translation team. And he's one of the important consultants that helps to do the translation process. He's this young guy surrounded by a bunch of older guys. And uh, it, you get to see the next generation picking up God's word and carrying it forward. And his life in itself is being changed. The Bible says a lot about how to deal with anger, and he's had a lot of anger in his life, and that's changing him. So uh, it's empowering for the people. They're excited to finally get God's word and to see their lives changed. It's, it's an amazing and beautiful thing. I'm, I'm still a little bit caught up by the fact that you started learning Greek and Hebrew when you were in first grade. I feel, a con I feel con you know, I'm way far behind with my kids is what I'm feeling like right now. Um, listen, Ryan, you're passionate about this. You're, you're going to, I'm just, you're made for this. God's just been leading you and guiding you towards this. And he's uh, getting everything ready so that he can go. And we talk at our church a lot about how we don't just ask Jesus into our heart. Um, we surrender our hearts to him. And I, I'm inspired by you. You're just you're, gonna, you're surrendering your, your, your heart, your life, your future so that people can have the scriptures. That, that's incredible. And uh, we're proud of you. And uh, we thank you.